Welcome to the podcast of Midtown Church OKC, a church of the Nazarene. We are a spiritual community of hope and transformation that lives the way of Jesus. We want to develop real relationships and have real conversations, so we would love to hear from you. Find information about our worship services, email a pastor, follow our blog, sign up for our newsletter, and find out how to be a part of our community by visiting our website, midtownchurchokc.org. Jesus, we recognize and we're grateful for the fact that you have been here long before we got here, that you are the one that invites us to this place, not just this physical room together, but also this place in our lives where we are all together at the same place at the same time, hearing the same words, wanting the same things. You have orchestrated this journey. You have brought us to this place. And now we ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and minds to understand. We trust that we are here for your good purpose. And even as Chris mentioned, we do come in with history and with baggage and with expectation and some with grief and some with anxiety and some with confusion, some with joy and hope and dreams. And we are grateful that we don't have to package them or perfect them or clean them up, that we can just bring it all to you and open our hands and allow you to sort through it. And we ask that whatever needs to be quieted, that you would quiet in us. And whatever needs to be drawn out, whatever needs to rise to the surface, whatever needs to be a louder voice, that you would make it so. We ask, Lord God, you who are our good shepherd, our refuge and our rock, our redeemer and our savior and our king and our friend and our brother. We ask that in these moments, we could have the grace to see you and hear you clearly and that we could know what it is that you are inviting us into. And as we see and hear clearly, we ask for the grace of courage You do not wrestle anything out of our hands. But once we see how good your goodness is, may we have courage to put down what's already in our hands so that we can pick up what you want to give us. Remind us of your goodness, your faithfulness, and your deep, abiding, unimaginable love for us. This is what we ask for and what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be reading out of the message translation. Usually I read out of the New Living Translation. You perhaps have the message on your phone or an iPad or something like that, or maybe you just have your own Bible and you want to look at it in your own translation or the translation you have. But I'd invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is the New, uh, this is the New Testament, the epistle reading for us uh, on this third Sunday, in, uh, on this third Sunday in the season of Epiphany. At 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 
Uh, reading three action-packed, theologically rich verses, verses 29 through 31. And I'd like to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. So hear the word of the Lord for us from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I do want to point out, friends, that time is of the essence. There is no time to waste, so don't complicate your lives unnecessarily. Keep it simple in marriage, grief, joy, whatever. Even in ordinary things, your daily routines of shopping and so on. Deal as sparingly as possible with the things the world thrusts on you. This world as you see it is on its way out. This is the word of God for the people of God. And let us say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So the Corinthian way was to capture every single desire. That's what they were about. Now, I want to let you know that by reading the text today, we're reading somebody else's mail, which at first might seem a little bit exciting because we just might find something juicy there. Now, I got a letter here. It is dated December the 15th of 1994. It's the first letter I've ever received from Holly. We didn't live in the same town, but when we were in the eighth grade, her cousin, my best friend, said to me, he introduced us, and he said to me, you need to marry my cousin so we can be related. And I did. And boy, the stuff that's in here. I can even smell the perfume still. It's fabulous. And I know that you want to know what's in here Because you know me, and you know Holly, and I've got some news for you today. You can't know. It's private. (laughs) But I will introduce you to somebody else's mail, and I'll make you this deal. Together, we can lean in and we can listen to the letter that comes from Paul to the Corinthians. Now, I'm sort of being flippant, but you need to understand, these letters have been nicely preserved so that we might be able to read them. And in order to unpack what's going on here, what we need to do is we need to step into the world of the Corinthians and we need to do some investigating so that we might be able to understand what Paul is saying to this little bitty church just a little bit more clearly. After all, the the church has protected these letters for over 2,000 years, so it could be, maybe, just possibly, that there is something for us here today. Now, Paul says something very strange. Maybe it's even a little bit disturbing in these, three, in these three little verses. He says this, that time is of the essence. The world as you know it is on its way out. Now, this might seem like hard words, especially when we look at the kind of city that Corinth is. I want to let you know that Corinth is a really cool place. It's a really cool city. At first glance, it would be the kind of place that I would really like to live. It's got this certain kind of vibe. It was cutting edge and diverse and technologically advanced. It was, it was the hub of everything exciting in that region of the world. Ancient Corinth was like a combination of, of five of our different cities that we have. It was like New York City. It was a seaport city. And it had an, that, had, that was an economic powerhouse. 
It was the backbone of trade and economics and politics for the whole region. And all kinds of people came in and out of its ports. But it wasn't just like New New York City. It was also like New Orleans. Corinth was rich with culture and, and it had an emphasis on art and music and the best food could be found in Corinth. You you need to listen to a new band that's up and coming. You went to Corinth. You wanted to see a new great piece of art. It was in Corinth. You needed to know what the scene was. Corinth. You needed a new restaurant to go to. Corinth was your place. But it wasn't just like New York City or New Orleans. It was like Boston as well. Because at the same time, it held all these things. It held also some of the best schools of thought and some of the best teachers resided there. Some of the best philosophers lived there. And it was an intellectual centerpiece with a high emphasis on education and philosophy. People traveled to Corinth because they wanted to learn from the best. And the best lived in Corinth. But it wasn't just like New York City, and it wasn't just like New Orleans, and it wasn't just like Boston. It was also like Los Angeles. It was the place where celebrities gathered. Actors went there, politicians, uh, government officials, business owners, and yes, even sports icons went to Corinth. They were there. They were all there. And as those people were there, they were treated by the rest of the population as gods. But it wasn't just like New York, and it wasn't just like uh, New Orleans, and it wasn't just like Boston, and it wasn't just like Los Angeles. It was also like Las Vegas. Because Corinth represented ultimate freedom. You were free to express every lust and every desire in any way possible, in any way your heart could imagine. It was sin city of the ancient world. Lots of prostitutions, bathhouses, ancient strip clubs, ancient massage parlors, wedding chapels, pagan temples where you could go and you could worship in any way you wanted. Gambling was there. Whatever you wanted to find, it was there. Whatever happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. And lots and lots of people got rich in Corinth. This was the place, the city for the ambitious. But, like most cities, including our city, Corinth had a dark side. Corinth had what we call this honor and shame system. It was an honor-shame society. And and honor and shame was was, uh, pervasive in every area of all of life and culture, including marriage and business and even the church. The church became an honor-shame society, and even in the church, it held an honor-shame system. Now, to be honored was to receive value, and when you received value from outside, it established your power in the community, and to be shamed was to be despised. Honor in the Roman world was bound up with, with male ideology, and it was, a male, it was a male value. In other words, just by being a male, that was the start of honor. And the implication was then that if you were born female, well, then you represented shame. 
Only educated men could aspire to positions that would establish reputations where they could carry influence and have authority. And women who were married to men were to do everything they could. They spent their whole lives bearing shame so that their husbands didn't have to. Now, men walked around and they could, you know, they could sow all the oats that they wanted, any kind of sexual relation that they wanted to have, but they would get married. And the reason that they would get married is because they wanted to establish a higher position in society. So a man would go to an established family and he would pay handsomely for a young wife. This, uh, this improved his status and it, and it showed honor. And because of this, the husband-wife relationship of the ancient world was not one of love, but it looked more like this weird uncle-niece kind of relationship because usually the man was older than his wife. And her job was to simply bear children. And even a part of the law that was happening in the day, Augustus Caesar established this law that women who were unmarried could be placed under arrest. It was their job to have children to increase the population. Well, you can imagine that this left women dejected and unwanted and used. And and if a man was going to make it in Corinth, he had to be ruthless, cutthroat, be willing to use any device, any manipulation tactic, and any opportunity just to get ahead. A man worked to establish his, his, his uh, reputation in the, public, in the public square, and any honor that he received was linked to some sort of power that then he would grab onto and seize. And this gave him the authority and the power then to look around and to begin to shame others, thus establishing his place in the society. Sometimes the victims of the ambitious one were his neighbors. Sometimes they were his fellow church members. Sometimes they were his wife. And the farther a man could climb a ladder, the more honored he was. And it was this whole sociological, economic, political, and even marital structure, this whole thing was built on this honor-shame system. So the Corinthian men could do whatever and did do whatever it took to be honored by others. They would make up and report, and this is no joke, there is actual documentation, I read this this week, they would make up and report fake news as it applied to somebody else so that they could work it to their own advantage. They would step on the neck of their best friend. It didn't matter. They'd arrange a marriage with some parents of a young girl, maybe as young as 12 or so, of a predominant family in order to establish honor. And because he didn't love her, he'd shame his wife whenever it was convenient. Whatever it took to receive honor. This honor, shame system, it carries the same kind of values that you see like in a a junior high lunchroom. It's a way in which the power structures keep the order. And Augustus Caesar believed that this kind of a system held society together. And at at the heart of an honor, shame system 
is loyalty to oneself. So you can imagine that the first early converts to Christianity brought these same kinds of values, these same kinds of Corinthian values of honor, shame into their relationships and their marriage, and they brought them even to their church. And boy, let me tell you, when they brought these kinds of values to their church, these people were in a quandary. They fought over everything. They picked fights about the color of the carpet, What kind of symbols should be on the platform, the style of music? Should they sing hymns or should they sing choruses? Was the music too loud or was it too soft? Should a preacher wear a tie or not? Or, you know, should you be allowed to wear, should you be allowed to drink coffee in the sanctuary? They fought about everything. Actually, that was the church that I grew up in. They fought about those things. The church in Corinth was actually worse than that. This little church had like 40 people in it, and and the the members were composed of a couple of very well-to-do, rich men with a lot, a lot of political clout, and had a lot of money, and the reason that they had a lot of money and a lot of political clout was because they were used to getting their way. In their little community, they had a few Jewish people, a, a few women, some children, And there were a few very poor people, but they were free. And then their little community of 40 there even had some slaves. And this created scandal. Now, you know, whatever you can think of that would be bad in a church was going on in here. And this honor-shame system was destroying the church. It was terrible. People were lifting money from the collection basket The wealthy were doing that because they said that they were the ones who had given it in the first place. The rich were going to worship early, and then they would get drunk from the communion wine, and then they would eat all of the bread, leaving nothing for those who were actually really hungry. If they didn't like what somebody else did, they'd sue somebody in a heartbeat. A divorce, a man could divorce his wife and did so in the little community at every whim. All he had to say to her was, pick up your things and leave. There was no formal application for divorce. And so therefore, remarriage was common, but remarriage was never ever for love. It was always for status. And oh man, you can't believe it, the sexual power plays that went on in this church. While the value system honored men, it shamed women. Harvey Weinstein-like characters served on this church board. Sexual misconduct was rampant in this community, including abuse and even incest. This was a bad church. And not only that... Some even tried to honor themselves by shaming their pastor, Paul. Even though he was from a predominant family and he had the best education, they said he was stupid. He's only a tent maker, they said. He's a Jew. He's not a real apostle. They complained about his preaching, and there's even evidence that they thought he was ugly. It was a disaster. And each of these disastrous things, each of these issues perfectly parallel the cultural nuances and the cultural values of Corinth itself. And if I was Paul, and I was the pastor of a church like this, I'd look at those people and I'd say, good riddance, you people disgust me. You can have one another. 
I am like so many others. You know, I give up on church easily. I, I don't like, if I don't like what's going on, I just pack up. And I'm, not, I'm being honest with you, that is my attitude. I am out of there. I, I, guess, I guess I let the American cultural value of consumerism leak into me and work its way into me. Because if I look at a church like that, I say, I am gone. This is not what Pastor Paul does. In fact, he didn't give up on these people at all. He actually looks at them and he has hope for them and he sees a new way forward for them. Pastor Paul acts like my old college roommate. My old roommate has been a pastor for a long time, maybe, maybe 20 years now. And he has served in some Corinthian church-like settings. Some of the people in his church have dealt with some of these, the issues that uh, the Corinthian people have dealt with. Power plays and manipulation and, and tactics, etc. And he has been lied about. And he's been accused of, of doing things he hasn't, do, and he hasn't done. And even one time, he was fired over an issue that he had nothing to do with. Now he's at this new church, and he found out that giving has gone down, and people left because they didn't like what was going on. And now he can't be paid what they first told him he would be paid, so he's gotten an extra job in a factory to support his family. And one day I looked at him, and I was like, why don't you get out of there? Those people disgust me. And he looked at me with this look of concern, like he felt sorry for me. It was like a great concern, like he couldn't believe that I didn't understand something that I should have intuitively known. And he said, Chris, how could I go? I have made a covenant with these people. Sure, they don't behave like I want them to behave, or sure, they don't, th- they don't behave like I think they should behave. But a covenant isn't a covenant if it's got conditions. And a covenant is a willingness to stay. A covenant is a willingness to love, to forgive, to be a community. It's a deeply imposed, even spiritual commitment to the other, even the other that doesn't like you very much. He said to me, Chris, a covenant is a willingness to say, regardless of what happens, I am with you. You know what theologians call this? An apocalyptic expectation. My friend, like Pastor Paul, has this supernatural, apocalyptic expectation for his church. It's this God-sized vision that perhaps love and forgiveness and friendship and healing and community and covenant, rather than honor and shame, would be the thing that would hold them together. Wouldn't a God-sized vision, an apocalyptic expectation be nice right about now in the world that we live in? If honor, shame, systems, broken relationships, sexless marriages, racism, consumerism, loneliness, misogyny, uh, xenophobia, fear, abuse, divorce, these things that are staples of this world in its present form and can be staples of the church, wouldn't it be great if they were replaced with something new like covenant? Covenant? 
something that looked like love, forgiveness, friendship, healing? Wouldn't it be great if there was an apocalyptic expectation? I think that's what we need. And Paul says, the good news is, friends, the time is short. And God is doing his part. And the world as you know it, the world in its present form with these old Corinthian kind of values, it's going away. So I want you to start living with this future in mind. Don't be the community that shames. Be the community that loves. Paul believed that this apocalyptic expectation was something that was out here in our future, but it wasn't just in our future. Because he also believed that the apocalyptic expectation was something that started in our past. It started in the person of Jesus, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he thought that what God was going to do in our future had already begun in Jesus in our past. You know, when Jesus was murdered on the cross, it was ultimate shame. However, now as you and I know it, because of this, the honor, shame, systems, the brokenness, the fragmentation, the fractured relationships, the inability to see value in one another, the cutthroat way, the fighting and the bickering and the restlessness that, that we have from not being married or the incapability to love our spouses if we are, the very forms of this world because of what Jesus had begun in our past is on, our, it's, on its way out and now there is a new way for us to live as we move into this future. Can you see what this future looks like? Because together we get to live into this future that has already been, but has not yet been fully realized. Pastor Mikhail and I, a few weeks ago, were given a note in the offering. It was a picture of that which God and Jesus had already begun as it moves into the future that he is going to realize and, be, and fulfill among us. It was a note that said, I've been meeting with a drug and alcohol counselor, and I've been clean and sober for one month. Praise Jesus. Full freedom from addiction is in my friend's future. And that freedom has begun now. And the forms of this world, they're on their way out in that person's life. I've had people who have come up to me and said, our marriage was on the brink, but now we're on the road to healing. What God will draw to completion, we know, which will be relational and marital healing, has already begun in Jesus. The forms of this world are on their way out. Emily told her story. It looked like loneliness, but in Jesus, a new community had been formed, and it's on its way to be fully realized. But perhaps loneliness will not exist for everyone forever. We remember this week the legacy of one of our leaders. He called for apocalyptic expectation. He saw a hopeful future, and he called his followers to start living into that future. And he said, it is time to stop being, uh, it is time to, to stop being people of shame. And through nonviolent protests, he called for justice, mercy, and equality. Do you know what he called for? community. He could see a new way forward. 
And his call to people was shaped by the way of Jesus, what Jesus had begun. And it's why I could post on my Instagram an apocalyptic expectation. This is a picture. These are my two best friends. One is a conservative white from New Orleans, and his name is Lance. The other, a liberal African-American from Los Angeles, whose name is Chuck. Me, moderate from Oklahoma City. And my post said this, our friendship is a peek into what this hero envisioned. Soon it will be complete. This is what it gets to look like now because of what God started in the past. Paul said the world in its present form is going away and, and, and if it is happening now, and yet it's not, even, it's, not, it's not fully realized, we wait for it to be fully realized. So what should we do? We should live into that end as if it was fully realized. This week, I have worked hard trying to be astonished by anything that I could. I tried to be open to anything astonishing, and I found out that everything promises to be astonishing. Fox News, CNN, YouTube, NPR, MSNBC, Twitter, Facebook, The Washington Post, The New York Times, The CBS Evening News, The Chicago Tribune, ESPN, ESPN2, ESPN News, and ESPNU, Fox Sports, Alternative Facts, Fake News, all of these things promise astonishment. But really, in actuality, all that stuff is quite mundane. It's boring. But what is astonishing? is when we remember that God has begun something in Jesus. And we remember that we live in a world where a resurrection has taken place. And what is astonishing is the forms that used to help make us, help us make sense of the world, they're no longer valid. All things, all life, all of creation, including the most intricate things like human beings and human relationships, all parts of creation are being remade. They're being made new. God has decided to go to work and to set forth a new way for us, a new way of living so we can see our future. And Paul says to his church, and I say to you tonight, the time is near for the old forms of this world are going away. So let us live together as if it was so. The best picture of apocalyptic expectation that I can see, that we can envision, is this. A future of a covenant community where Jesus is the center of it all. I want you to see this picture. The Lord's Supper it's the very best picture that we have of an uh, uh, of a apocalyptic expectation, of a new vision that God has put together. It is through the sacrifice of his body and the pouring out of his blood that he began to establish something new, a new community. Look at the picture. These are his brothers. The culture had worked its way into their psyche, into their very identity. That by shaming himself, by washing their feet, 
he embodied a new reality called love. He called them into a new future by inviting them to live with him into that future. And it is here in these moments that they became a new community. And the service that Jesus offered to his disciples on that night is offered to us as well. And we listen to his words this evening. You need to come to my table. You are invited. You are my delight. I want you to come and I want you to sit with me and I want you to eat with me. I would like you to come to this table so that I can take care of you and serve you. I shame myself in order to honor you. And he invites us to share with him in this new way of living. So I want to remind you that on, on, the night before, uh, on the night before he was betrayed by those he came to save, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And whenever you eat it, I want you to remember what I've done. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. And whenever you drink of it, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. I want you to be clear about this. When you come to this table, he honors you by shaming himself. This is Jesus' table. And all who are open to this work of God in Christ are welcome. And I want you to know that we want no barriers so our bread is gluten-free and our wine is non-alcoholic so that everyone who wants to participate can participate. It is his service to you. So I want to invite you to come down this aisle with your hands cupped and ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We do not take communion. We receive it. It is a gift So come to one of these stations, come to one of my friends, allow them to serve you, and then dip the bread into the cup and eat it, knowing that you have been honored at this table, and now you have a new way to live. If for any reason you're unable to come down our aisle or you need assistance, just wave at Justin, and he will serve you. Allow me to pray. So, Lord, as this world attempts to work its way into us, deep into our psyche, deep into even our church, we pray that what takes place at this table, when we see that you have shamed yourself in in order to honor us, that there for us is a new way to live. That what began in Christ Jesus, in his life, and his death, and his resurrection is a peek into what God is doing and what God will do for us in our future. May we come to this table with hope. May we come to this table with an apocalyptic expectation. This is what we long to do. We're grateful for your servant, Paul, and the church that preserved these words for us this evening. So we come to this table grateful. It is in your name we pray.